on Blue Ion, this is The Way Out There. Conversations and stories about the relationship between people and the outdoors. We interview outdoor leaders, teachers, guides, and everyday individuals who have answered a call to step into the vast beauty out there. By hearing their stories, we hope you'll be inspired to go way out there yourself. Lucas Bissett has been obsessed with fish and fishing for pretty much his whole life. Based out of Slidell, Louisiana, he channeled his passion into a successful fly fishing guide business where he was named the Orvis Saltwater Fly Fishing Guide of the Year and a parallel career in fisheries conservation, including the amazing Black Mangrove Project. When Lucas was in Charleston earlier this summer, we had a chance to sit down and talk about his experiences guiding, the conservation projects he's helped launch and grow, and what's on his horizon. So we hope you enjoy the show. As any time spent with Lucas is bound to provide some laughs, some smarts, and definitely some inspiration. people already is like he's a really he's a really good presenter and storyteller and um and he has a lot of passion for what he's talking about so that's nice that's nice feedback the next morning yeah absolutely and thanks for sitting down and doing this this morning before you got to head back to uh to louisiana yep um so last night you know you kind of took us through a pretty cool journey of i guess sort of a story a transformation right from your you know your early days fishing to your uh later years of fishing to um sort of awakening to conservation issues and, and sort of larger and bigger picture um, concerns that you had, you know, and then programs you started. So we're going to kind of maybe work through a little bit of that this morning, if that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, burrow into some of those. So let's start first with your your guiding, you know, and the fishing that, you're, that you've done and that you're doing right now. How did you get introduced to the premise of guiding, that that's a calling and a career that you can follow? And how did what literal first step did you take to get lined up and going? So it's, it's somewhat of a funny story. Um, I was sitting around a breakfast table at a friend's house uh, one Saturday morning, and uh, we were all watching the uh, Jose Wahibe show Spanish Fly when it was still on. And I had, I had been just fishing, you know, a lot. and Just knew, personal Just personal, interest. yeah. I'd gotten into fly fishing for redfish in Louisiana. I was doing it on a regular basis. I was taking friends out. I actually was taking out co-workers uh, from LSU when I was working there. And so uh, I was on the water all the time. And we're sitting there watching the Spanish fly. And I, I told somebody in passing, I was like, you know, I think I would be good at being the guy on the back of the boat taking Jose fishing. And everyone immediately agreed that, you know, with my personality and my years of experience and fishing just in general, that it would probably not be a huge step. And so at that moment, I sort of pledged to myself that I was going to find a way to be a guide mm-hmm. in, in some capacity. It felt like something that was just going to be part-time. It would just do it in the interim. I thought if I could just pay for my habit of fishing, you know, it'd be a good balance. You know, I was going to continue working at LSU for all the benefits that I had there, but that I was going to take people fishing for, for money. What were the first steps? Like, what did you have to do? To so so I, I, I pledged to myself that I was going to get a, a captain's license. So I was going to study 
and get the license that the Coast Guard issues, which is a six-pack license. It's a um, you're, you're basically an officer as a merchant marine in in the Coast Guard. Cool. Yeah. And um, it's a difficult test. It really is. You know, there's multiple ways that you could kind of get the license. There's uh, you could pay companies and they'll teach you what's on the test. But I didn't want to do that. You know, I wanted to I wanted to achieve it on my own, and so I studied for four months. And I passed the test, and I got my captain's license. Is the test water time and classroom time? It is. um, The water time is sort of an honor system portion Mm -hmm. of it. You have to have X amount of days on the water and a time frame in order to be eligible. And it has to be in specific to what you're trying to do. And so between my own boat and then Buddy's boats, I was able to make that, that time frame. And then the other part of it, the bigger part of it, is the test. There's, I think there's four sections, and you have to get a, a percentage of, of the questions right on each section, and that percentage differs. But um, it's a difficult test. And I think I think I was the only person out of the 10 or 12 in the room to pass. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it was, it's, it's not easy when you do it on your own. There's a ton of information. Uh, one of the sections is called Rules of the Road, and there's just all sorts of lighting schemes that boats are going to have and, and other things during navigation that you need to know. And so right memorizing away. that, exactly. Yeah. Memorizing that, and then it's only a 10-question section. And you can only miss three questions, yeah, yeah. you know, and and so you're 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 distilling down all this information to ten questions, and you don't know what those ten questions are going to be, and then there's like a charting section that's like plotting, you know, wind versus current and how that's going to you know move your position, and you got to triangulate three GPS positions, and you got to draw it on a map. You actually have to use like a, a, a slide and all this stuff it wow. it's pretty incredible Intense, it, man it was fun yeah. um after i passed it was fun <laughs> so if you've got like a young girl or a guy who's thinking about like i think i want to follow that same path what would you tell them about the training or the studying and the and the test part of it uh, you know study more than you think you need to study there's a lot of practice opportunities online um there's a company that i went through and i don't remember the name unfortunately right now you could google it but it would just be a matter of of taking your hardest test that you had in high school or college and studying four times more than you would have for that. Because in the heat of the moment, it's also a time test. And so you, you have to make sure that you're comfortable with this information. Because the way that the questions are are worded, it's trick. You know, a lot of it is tricky. It's trick right. questioning. And so you have to make sure that you understand it backwards and forwards in order to be able to get that right. Now yeah. I said, there's more than one way to, to skin that cat. And you could go the route of paying 1500 or $2,000 to an organization or a company. They wouldn't help you pass the test. Yeah, test but, prep. Exactly. Yeah. But if you weren't looking to go that route, you were looking to take the, the Bissett way, you know, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> then you would, uh, you'd want to just study your butt off and, and That's go the way I want to take it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and then uh, what time of time lapse and period uh, went down between you getting into guiding and then you getting uh, awarded, decorated, or recognized, whatever the right word is, as uh, part of the um, the Orvis sort of uh, program and being named the 2017 Saltwater Fly Fishing Guide of the Year? That's pretty cool. What what is that? What happened in that trajectory and that led up to that moment? So I got my license in October of 2011. Uh, started guiding part-time then. I got Orvis endorsed in 2012 mm-hmm. and then won the Orvis endorsement in 2017. What's so, that about? What do they look at and how did that so it's criteria? A cul- it's a culmination of reviews online mm-hmm. and then what you're doing beyond being a guide. 
And so Orvis is really good about recognizing people who are doing that extracurricular activity and being a steward of, the, of their fishery or, you know, working on education components in the fishery. And so I was, I was lucky enough to be doing both. You know, I was, I was working on this black mangrove project, which we can talk about in, in, yeah, we will. in more, in more uh, detail later. But I was working on that project, plus doing some education outreach. Plus, if you look at my reviews, customers were talking about the education component of the trips that I was providing because I, I try not to brag too much and people may disagree with that. But <laughs> the one thing that I know I am better at than anyone on the water currently is that I know the marsh better than people, not necessarily how to navigate it. But I know the ecosystem. I understand how it works. I understand the integral parts of it that all work together because of the work that I did at LSU. You know, and, and having that science part of it, yeah. it, it really adds to the experience for customers. Because people have a lot of questions. I've always jokingly say that, yes, I'm a guide. I'm also a photographer. I'm also a psychiatrist. I'm also, you know, a bartender at times, you know. And so yeah. there's... There's this You're collecting a photographer, data, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, being able to answer people's questions honestly and with yeah. good, you know, science-based responses, it really endears people to you because they and they know that you care about the place enough to learn That's it, cool. and you care about them enough yeah. to be able to to give them the information that they're looking for. That's because, cool. And that comes know, out of the reviews, and that comes out of word of mouth, and then obviously it was in the programming, and that's all part of sort of. Uh, Orvis's model for like, here's someone who's making a difference. Exactly. They want to showcase those folks, you know, and that's, that's how you, that's how you get better guides in the industry. You know, that's how you, you raise the standard, you raise the bar and say, here is what we consider the best. Yeah. Achieve to be that. Very cool. You know, and, and yeah. it's leading by example. And, yeah. I, and I think that's really cool. Where do you want to take um, your guiding work right now? Like, where, where are you with it now? And what are you thinking about in the five years ahead? So I've, I've pivoted some. Um, you know, I've started to do more sort of consulting work with, uh, with NGOs out of D.C. And I've, I've, I've pivoted into a, a more of a, an advocate role. Mm-hmm. And so with that, my guiding career had to take somewhat of a back seat which I'm okay with. It's a good transition for me because of my, you know, my wife and son. I wanted to spend more time with them. And as a guide, you're, you're working when everyone else is off. Yeah, you know, right. I mean, everyone wants to be here on a holiday or everyone wants to fish on a weekend. It sounds super glamorous, but there's a pretty gritty, um, grindy side to it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, if, if you're on your first day or your 30th day in a row, you have to treat people the same way you would on your first day. And so there's a lot to burnout. I think that it does happen. I've seen it happen. I saw it happen with myself to a certain extent. Not that I was treating people badly, but I got to where it wasn't necessarily what I woke up to do every day. And and maybe that's a little too honest, and I don't know that I should have said that. But <laughs> but it, but it, it you was, know I'll edit it out. Yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it's just one of those things where. I found that there was a higher calling. There, there was something that was pulling me in a direction that right. I, I needed to go. Yeah. And and guiding just had to take a bit of a backseat. Yeah, and, yeah, and so what I did is I pivoted the business. I, I took low tide charters, which still exists. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I gave up my Orvis endorsement and I rolled it into Louisiana Local Guide Service. And so now we're an Orvis endorsed guide service. Nice. And, and as someone who's had their own identity and brand from the time that they created their own business, it was a bit of a transition because now you're giving up the name, the spotlight, but it was for the better of customers. And that this may sound cheesy or staged, but the truth is, is that it's always been about the customer's experience for me. It's always been about when they leave, 
Are they a better person for it? Have they learned something when they were there? And oh yeah, did they catch a fish? Yeah. And so I align myself with nine other guides who all live the same mantra that I do. We all live in Louisiana and we fish in Louisiana 365 days a year, which I think is extremely important for the customer experience. Yeah. Because someone who lives in a state and guides there in that state, I truly believe have more passion for the fishery. It doesn't mean that anyone else coming from somewhere else is not a good guide and that they're not doing a great job. It's just that when you talk about passion and education for customers, it rings true. It, it's something that comes across whether you want it to or not. And so I pivoted, I, I made it to where I could remain relevant in our industry and, and in our state. I still have an opportunity to, to talk to customers and do all that customer interaction part that I really enjoy but I'm giving other guys opportunities to come up in the ranks and to do to do something that they dream of doing. Yeah. Me, eight years ago. Yeah, yeah. That's and so cool. it, it was it was a natural transition. It took a minute to get used to. You know, mm-hmm. I went to, to Orvis Guide Rendezvous this year in, in April in Missoula, and it was just a little different talking about everyone else instead yeah. of myself. Yeah. It was good. It's painful, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyone who's been any time with me. I have a hard time me, with that. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say anyone who's been any time with me knows I love talking about me. But, but I also understand that it's about the big bigger picture yeah, and, and yeah. maybe that's part of getting older i don't yeah. know well know? it's cool and i mean as you continue to pivot or evolve or follow your heart into things then some of that crew is going to then wind up playing more and more of a role you know yeah. the guide service that's so, what i so, hope yeah, you know yeah, that's yeah. that's the dream and the beauty of it is that with with these guys they all have their own businesses so i'm not responsible for feeding their families right, right. i'm just able to bolster what it is that they're naturally nice. doing and so it, it, it's just it's a really symbiotic thing yeah. that's working for us i mean Everybody's bought in. They're they're putting business back into the business, and so they're getting money from that. They're getting referral fees. Everybody's really happy right, right now. And right. and as anyone who's ever worked around guides realizes that we are as the most equivalent to young high school kids as it can be from a drama standpoint. <laughs> in order to keep ten different personalities all functioning on a high level, it's difficult, but uh, it's something that is working currently. So. Yeah. So that made me think, just thinking about a young high school kid, uh, be it a, a young woman, young man who wants to or is dreaming about becoming a guide. What would you tell them about, you know, why it's the best thing in the world to do and pursue that path? And what would you say? But you better think about this because this is harder than you imagine. What were those two answers? Um, I would say if, if that's something that you want to do, learn your water. You know, the thing that that is a pet peeve of mine and it's because of customer experience is when people try to buck the system they try to they try to they try to circumvent the amount of experience i think it takes in order to give the customer a quality experience because the truth is is that your a spot and your b spot and your c spot some days aren't going to work so you better have through i or j or k and ready because if you don't customers sense that they're like horses they sense fear they know when you're not prepared and so if you're not ready for that don't become a guide yeah you know, continue to learn your trade, continue to learn about being a guide. The other thing that people don't think about is that as a guide, it's about people relations. It's not about fishing. You know, just because you're the best salesperson doesn't mean you're the best manager. Just because you're the best fisherman doesn't mean you're the best guide. Because guiding is about taking a back seat and and living through somebody else's experience. And if you're not the guy who's willing to push your buddy around on the back of the boat all day, 
you're not the guy who's ready to stand on the back of the boat because if you need to be up there fishing, yeah. you're not ready to guide because yeah. you don't fish, not yeah. in our industry, not yeah. what we do. Yeah. You know, you're not like on the front of the boat helping yeah. them cast and stuff. You're on the back of the boat pushing them around, spotting the fish for them. And so you're not getting an opportunity to fish very often. Yeah. And so it's, it's a matter of being able to step away from the fishing part of it and living vicariously through their experiences. Yeah. And the other thing is you're meeting people new every single day and you're spending eight hours with that person yeah. at times. You know, that's a lot of time to spend on a boat one-on-one right. if you're not a people person. Right. You know, I've had friends in the past who, have, who were great fishermen and would have been great guides, but just hate people. Yeah. And so if you're, if you're in that situation, think about it. Think about the, the guiding experience being a one-on-one interaction or a two-on-one interaction Cause for if you, hours on end. Yeah, and if you're not, I mean, that's going to burn out quickly. And right? it's about, it's about yeah. being a chameleon, too, in personality. Yeah. You have to adjust to people's yeah. you know, personalities. You can't just have one speed all the time. And yes, you can, but your, your success rate is going to vary depending on it. Yeah. You have yeah. to be able to say yes, so, yes sir, no sir to, to one person and talk about the most devious things to another. You just have to read that situation and be malleable. If you're not, then you, you know, you're going to get a, a reputation of sorts, and then people may not want to fish you because of your yeah. your demeanor. Yeah. You know, and so there's a there's a lot more to guiding than fishing. Is it true? I mean, eight hours on the uh, on the water with someone in a small boat is pretty amazing. And it, is it true that just like you wind up talking about stuff that you never wind up talking about anywhere else in life? Yeah, I mean, yeah. at some point you run out of the formalities, right. you know, I mean, you, you've burned through You're those. Digging deep. It's like they always say, like, if you want to know whether or not your relationship's going to survive, go yeah. on a car trip, yeah. you know, go on yeah. a go on a road trip. Yeah. It's because when you're in a vehicle or you're on a boat for hours on end, you work through the, the superficial stuff and now you've got to get down to the heart of the matter. And the same thing's happening with customers. You know, there's a trust level that's created. Once you break through those normal barriers, now yeah. you're, you're deep, you know, yeah. you're getting in there, yeah. you're getting dirty. And if yeah. you're not a person who can go with that flow, yeah. it's going to be difficult. It's, but if you are, man, that creates a bond that carries lifelong. forward time and time lifelong. again. You know? I've got people, every time a hurricane comes, when it's my birthday, all these things, I've got guys guys I fished with eight years ago who still call me and say, hey man, happy birthday. Yeah, or hey, cool. how you do, how's your family doing? Yeah. How's the wife and kid? You know, and, or they come back and they go, how's, how's Wyatt now? That's my son, you know? And those are lifelong bonds that are created that you just can't break them because like I talked about last night, there's just something that happens in that primitive moment of being outside and getting away from our phones and all this technology that connects people on a visceral level that just doesn't happen anywhere yeah. else. Yeah, they connect with each other and you're connecting to something larger going on out there and that's just, man, that's all too rare today. Yeah, that's really nice. Well, so um, let's let's pivot and talk about black mangroves. So um, I, I love this story. I got to hear it first in Austin earlier this year when we were down there for the AFTA Dealer Summit and was just blown away by how cool that program was and uh, um, you know, just all the pieces of it coming together and the impact that it's had and is still having. So can you, in a nutshell, for the, uh, for the listener out there, tell, um, tell a little bit about how you got started, what the Black Mangrove Project is, how that got started, and I know you can't get through it all because we don't have enough time. We'll maybe then pivot and sort of talk a little bit about where is it going next. So um, about three years ago, I, I just had this idea of going out and planting black mangroves in, in, our, in our coasts on, in Louisiana, where I fish specifically, which is St. Bernard Parish. Um, I saw that there was some native stands of black mangroves in those areas. And so I just wanted to help bolster the population. And that, that terrain out there is, um, uh, marsh. Yes. Heavy, 
expansive, endless marsh. Endless marsh. I yeah. call it the watery yeah. Serengeti. Yeah. It's, oh. it's literally lacking the lions. And like we this. got a little of that around here. Yeah. Right? So yeah. It's a similarity. This morning, this morning at breakfast, I had a nice view. I saw yeah. the yeah. very similar marsh. Okay, cool. So Spartina grass. Large part treeless, maybe little humps of trees here and there. Very but, small amount of trees. Yeah, very, yeah. very small amounts. Okay. Um, you know, and, a few like Indian burial sites that have some, some trees on them, but right. otherwise all of that was forested at some point. Okay. Cool. You know, and are there black mangroves out there? Yes. Or? Okay. Yes, right. and there's there's a couple islands that have quite a stand of black mangroves. Right. Cool. You know, there's Gardner Island and Comfort right. Island, which are right there in pretty close proximity to each other, that are just absolutely inundated with black mangroves. Cool. All right, I'll shut up. And let you get back. No, you're story. fine. You're All fine. Right. Um, so so I I was like just gonna do it on my own. You know, I was just gonna go out and I was gonna plant some black mangroves, and I wanted to just see what it would look like to to plant them. I I thought it'd be neat to to have you know, the bird rookery and the other things, the other benefits that come with black mangroves, not to mention a windbreak for me, because like I said, there's a lack of trees. Right. And so there's a bit of an ulterior motive there, like I talked about so last a wind, night. There's a windbreak, there's bird habitat, fish love those root systems. Do yeah, they absolutely. I mean, it, it, we don't get a whole lot of flood tiding, right. you know, in our area. Um, we do get tides that are higher than normal. They're typically created by either a strong southeast wind for a long time or a mm -hmm. hurricane. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not experiencing the same thing that y'all are okay. here, you know. Um, so fish would potentially use it very sparingly depending okay. on tides. And then it, it holds uh, it holds the coastline. Together, yes. Right? Yeah, and, the root right. systems are far more dense and far more robust than what our smooth core grass or Spartina grass has, mm. yeah. which is the native most prevalent grass that we have in our area. And so um, I, I just figured, you know, hey, this is a great shoreline stabilization tool potentially. Uh, we're experiencing warmer temperatures on average, so they're moving further north. Uh, in fact, this is something I didn't talk about last night, but we discovered that we have the f northernmost stand of black mangroves in the country. Huh. And they, they didn't even know they were there. And so that was a benefit of the of the program that is sort of ancillary. You That's know? the, uh, the climate-wise, it gets too cold yes. north of there. They yep. can't survive. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that they're, you know, because we're getting warmer temperatures on average, they're starting right. to move. Creep up. Yeah, further north. And so um, these two stands that I'm talking about are years and years old, 15 to 20 years mm. old. And so they've, they'd moved to that point, obviously, in the past. But now we're starting to see smaller pockets further right. north. And so I was just going to go out and do that myself. Yeah. Um, I went into St. Bernard Parish government. I asked who owned the land in order to get permission to walk around on it and make the planting happen. Uh, that lent itself to them getting involved. And then before I knew it, and this is literally before I knew it, there was multiple entities involved, private, public, both. In a good way. In a great way. Yeah. Yes, it was It was a collaboration of effort that were all working towards the same goal. And there why, were no ulterior motives. Why did they snap to so fast? You know, it, it feels like that story could have gone just the opposite. It could yeah. have. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I can only speculate. I mean, part of it is that it was this was a new administration. Mm -hmm. They were looking for ways to make a difference. Um, this was a great opportunity for them when they realized sort of what was going on and what the potential could be. And so, you know, whatever their motivation was, it was it was noteworthy. It was good cause. It was it was for the right reasons. That's cool. And so it helped out. And then, you know, these things have a way of snowballing. You know, once somebody mm -hmm. hears about it and they realize the opportunity, then somebody else gets involved. Orvis, to their credit, got involved right away. They had no problem. I called them up. I said, hey, this is what I want to do you know, where do you fit? And they, they were able to come up with money 
very props, quickly. Props to them. And um, and you know, but that's Orvis's way. I yeah, mean, not yeah. that I'm plugging Orvis, but yeah. they're just they're all about conservation efforts. So so before I knew it, it was it was this multi-entity, multi-year program now that you know we've planted thousands of black mangroves uh we've gotten the kids involved from the local high school there in chalmette high they're growing the seeds uh seedlings in their greenhouses then they're going out and planting them themselves and so now you have this community outreach portion of the program which is really the coolest part for me i was going to say the same thing man it's like that when you were telling that story and it, it maybe it's a parallel to what you're talking about guiding you know, there's the there's the um, the activity of fishing, finding fish, catching fish, and all that stuff. But then there's the magic of what's actually happening between the people and the connections you're making and all that. And that same sort of thing's happening in this project. Absolutely. You know, there's the there's the science and the data collecting and the planting and all that. And that's that's pretty cool in itself. But to hear about these students sort of taking ownership of it and then and then and then you being able to watch them run with it is that's that's like the that's the special stuff, right? Well, it's it's what is going to hopefully create a movement in the younger generation that's going to make them invested in our coast yeah otherwise it's your harebrained idea right yeah and then it's going to uh, go as long as you want it to go and then as minute you're like i'm tired it's gone right yeah. and there's something about creating a legacy beyond cool. me I, it's it's way beyond me already which i'm excited about yeah but like you said i didn't want it to die with me i mean that was the whole point is that i want my son to be able to look out there and say my dad did that yeah. and also Everyone else is doing it, you know, and and that was what it was for me because you need these programs to be widespread and have a large scale to make true impacts. And the fact that we have this community involvement and they're now learning and and it's a it's an uninhibited learning. It's it's like there's no there's no ask. You know, there's no there's no. Oh, yes. And it's go out there and do it, you know, and they're enjoying it and they're taking ownership. And so they're the ones who are now going to continue to talk about the program, continue to to move it forward beyond me. Cool. And you created a proper um, like organization or nonprofit around it, right? To help yeah. it, help it kind of like yep. prosper and move yep. forward. Some right? of those same guys who were in that that room for breakfast when I became a guide yeah. are on the board of, of Able. Yeah. So yeah. it's full circle, you yeah. know. And and what's uh, Able stand for? Uh, Anglers bettering Louisiana's estuaries. Nice. Nice. Yeah, nice. yeah. I came up with that with a sh- in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. And your brother did some sweet design, man. Yeah, look, shout out to Ethan. He is yeah. he is an amazing graphic designer. The kid, he actually works for Patagonia, yeah. which is pretty I'll sh- cool. I'll second that, man. He's, yeah. he's got some nice work out there. Yeah, he's all my websites. He's yeah. designed. Yeah. So That's anything that you see, important. If you're going into business, you need to have a brother or a sister is a really good designer. <laughs> yeah, you were talking earlier about the guide thing with the younger yeah. kids. Yeah, yeah, find your brother or sister yeah. who's a good designer and have yeah. them work on all your stuff yeah um and so if you could imagine where um we're able and and the, and the black mangrove project and where these kids are, are marching forward what 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 could what would you love to see happening in the next five years with that whole program once i realized that this program was bigger than me um my goal has always been to make it replicatable make it to where any school in any parish in louisiana that's along the coast could go out and do something similar and the way that needs to happen is through science. You know, you have to have data that will tell people where to plant, what elevation, what times of year, what are the success rates look like based on, you know, all these variables. Yeah. And, and so we're working on that portion of it now. Um, we're in the process, hopefully, of partnering with LSU, uh, the school, and a couple scientists there who are going to help us get that more robust information. Okay. So. Five years from now, I would love to see the Black Mangrove Project become a statewide, you know, 
across different parishes, across different parts of the coastline, people going out and replicating that program because there's a lot more to it than just the black mangroves part of it. It's the community outreach part. It's all the things that we talked about, you know, Mm -hmm. having an opportunity to impact more than just our coast. But there's also a part of it that we haven't talked about, which is the fact that mangroves are one of the best carbon sequestering vegetations there are in our coast. And so you have an opportunity to offset some of what man has been doing with with climate change, you know, and, and it's cool because you know, it's unfortunate, but climate change is a political thing and it, it, it's very divisive. But when you have people doing something that they didn't realize could be offsetting it, now you're approaching climate change from a different way and you're talking about it in a way that makes it cool and not so divisive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You pull the, uh, the burrs out of it, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 Make yeah, it more cool. palatable because yeah. that's what it is. It's that if you're doing this kind of stuff, you are affecting the climate right. in a good right. way. Right. Right. And right. you may not even realize it and yeah. that's what makes it cool. It's that yeah. aha moment yeah. when Somebody says, oh, man, I thought that that was just something to argue over. I'm doing something for it. it. Yeah. Very cool. Well, the third the third chapter of this sort of story as it, as it is right now in, in your life and what you're working on and what you shared last night is is then uh, evolves into this whole larger notion of like healthy fisheries, you know, and sustainable fisheries and all that stuff. And I'm sure this was sort of maybe it's probably in you all along, but it's also becoming more and more apparent or more and more of a concern, you know, or just maybe you see doors opening and and ways to kind of address it through the work and the community and the collaborations you're building. But could you uh, talk a little bit about, I guess, this next step to, um, to helping uh, connect with communities, connect with anglers about the Magnuson Stevens Act, the, the healthy fisheries efforts and protecting these sort of vital resources so that everyone can enjoy them generations ahead. Did I frame that right? Yes, absolutely. No, that's perfect. Um, I mean, if you look at if you look at what I'm doing currently in my community with the Black Mangrove Project, Mm -hmm. it's about habitat restoration. It's about keeping what is there there and trying to help it build. Right. And by doing that, you're helping the fishery. Right. You know, that that nursery that was created by the Mississippi River 3000 years ago is absolutely integral to everything that happens in the Gulf of Mexico. And so by doing that, I am already advocating for a healthy fishery because that's what it's about. Yes, it's about saving the marsh, but that marsh is a nursery. It is a place for 80% of the the Gulf species to grow up and to, to be able to survive. And without that, you lose a good portion of the nursery that is... The Gulf of the Mexico, Gulf of Mexico the, the expanded impact of what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the transition was so simple hmm. that it was right in front of me all the time. And I asked myself this question because you sort of posed it. It's the cart of the horse. It's the egg or the chicken. Mm-hmm. Was this in me already and I just found a way to tap into it? Or was this pulled from somewhere else and now I'm tapping into it? I, right. I don't know. Right. Um, I, I know that when I started the Black Mangrove Project, it awoke something inside of me I didn't know existed. And then once I opened that spigot, there was no stopping it. And that flow had to go somewhere. And it became about abundant fisheries. It became about, as a fly fishing captain, as a guide, 
we in the world of fly fishing need a lot of fish in order to be successful. Right. We're using a primitive method of fishing. We're, we're taking out a lot of the, the newer technology that is helping you be successful when it comes to fishing. So the only way to offset yeah, that... You're pushing that aside. Exactly. The yeah. only way to offset that is to have a bunch of opportunity. Yeah. And so that opportunity comes from abundant fisheries. And so for me, it was just this natural you know, progression right into the federal yeah. fisheries part of it yeah. because I saw... Saw people trying to undermine right. that abundance through deregulation, and that that abundance of healthy fisheries, sort of, is a the signature legislation or bill or whatever the appropriate word for it is, is the Magnuson Stevenson Act, right? So yes. is, that, is that sort of the centerpiece of a of a conservation focused fisheries? It has become that. It has become yes, that. Okay. yes. Over the years, since it was instituted in '76, it has become sort of the. It's evolved and gotten stronger. It's evolved and, and gotten stronger. Okay. It's, it's it's put in scientific measures that have created abundant fisheries. Yeah, awesome. and, and and so it's, and it's had that impact in in various cases. In various cases, yeah, in various I mean, geologies. we're talking over forty stocks in the last yeah. twenty years that cool. have been rebuilt from yeah. from the point of almost being gone. Right. We're not talking about, oh, they were okay, and then we made them yeah. better. We're talking about these babies yeah. were on the verge of collapse, yeah. and they were brought back. So what is what is then the challenge right now, or the issue right now, or the debate over that, that that we need to think about and possibly weigh in on? Well, you know, there's there's a couple different things. I mean, one, we're talking about sustaining those, those abundant fisheries or mm-hmm. creating more abundant fisheries. Mm-hmm. And there are folks in the recreational industry and some of the manufacturing industry that are trying to undermine some of the conservation measures that are in Magnuson in order to have more access to the fishery. So there's this this juxtaposition that's happening with the number of anglers on the water versus the number of resources there are. Right. And at some point there has to be, you know, a a tectonic shift you know you can't you can't continue to take these two giant forces and smash against each other right. without some sort of earthquake yeah, and so yeah. um you know people don't really want to address the fact that there are a lot more anglers now that there were and that technology is better than it used to be and that we're better fishermen overall and that we have to address that in some way and and magnuson works to take all of those things in mind and then base management decisions off of those things. But people want to take out certain components that have created these abundant fisheries in order to get that access that they think is going to help them sell more stuff. Yeah. And it just becomes sort of my myopic focus on access. Exactly. Even when in all likelihood that could lead to worse experience and fisheries later. It's been proven. I mean, this is, this is the beauty of it. This is the irony of it is that you're talking about fisheries like the red snapper fishery in the Gulf of Mexico that used to be the bad old days. And now we're in the good old days. And so to take that back to the bad old days, we have an example of where it, where it can go, which is downhill. Why in the world would you want a short term gain in order to end up in the days where you couldn't catch a red snapper, (laughs) which is only in the early nineties. Like, wow, that's like, look what we did. Isn't that awesome? Let's go ruin it. Let's go destroy it. You know, and, and it's, it's a short-sighted approach. You know, people want to talk about economic impact and other things and how, you know, people have to be able to get out there in order to make money and all these businesses are going to collapse. What I'm trying to do is teach people, and I think the fly fishing industry is a great example, mm-hmm. is that catch and release or putting fish back is a sustainable model, not only for the fishery, but also for the business. I have made a living for eight years not keeping fish. Customers understand the need to let stuff go. 
And every once in a while, I have somebody who want to keep a fish that they're going to eat that night, and I'm fine with that. It's within the parameters of the law. I'm good with it. But it doesn't mean that you have to keep fish every time you go in order to A, have fun, and B, have customers come back because it's not necessary. Yes, there's small pockets of that that may exist, but the truth is is that there's an entire industry out there, a large industry in the fly fishing industry, that has proven the model of sustainability through catch and release. Catch and release. And sustainable economically. And so all I want to do is take my experience as a fly fishing guide and go to anglers and say, hey, you don't have to keep a fish every single time in order to have a sustainable business. In fact, I would argue that you're not sustainable by taking fish every single time. You know, that only stands the reason to me in logic that the more you take, the less you have. And so why would you want to continue taking from a resource knowing that it's not a sustainable model? You know, the other thing I think about, too, is back to that role as a guide, as a bit of a coach, um, you know, um, and a teacher out there. I mean, what an amazing teachable moment with all those with all those clients that you're out there with. Absolutely. It's like you're in a perfect position to be able to have a pretty significant impact. I mean, you're, yeah. you are literally this person's... Sherpa, you're you're yeah. there. You're their connection to this fishery. Yeah. You have an opportunity to mold them into the customer that they could be. And if you don't take that opportunity to to educate them on sort of the sustainability of this whole thing, then in my opinion, you're you're not doing a great job. Yeah. You know, and I may catch some flack for that, but it's the truth. I mean, you we all have a responsibility to this planet in a certain way and and if you're not willing to stand up and do that as the person who is this gateway to a fishery then you're 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 failing yourself in a way because you're not making something sustainable and i mean what if your son or daughter want to follow in your footsteps are they going to have the same fishery that you did probably not not if you continue on that path are they going to have a sort of a depleting approach versus a exactly a adding approach yeah. exactly and that's what i really sort of loved and you wrapped it up that way last night and i think that's what the crowd really responded to was this notion of is you is that's been your journey and your story from you know being a young whippersnapper trying to get as much count as you can get that cooler filled as quickly uh and fully as possible you know and there's just this evolution that happens as you grew grew and you and you became wiser and you saw what was going on and you start thinking about it more and more um that's a it's been a really interesting to to hear you talk about that transformation taking place and uh man we hope that more people are going through that now and maybe going through that younger and going through that cycle faster i i i i believe that the average angler is conservation minded whether they know it or not. I mean, there's, there's a certain part of you that when you're out there, even if you're trying to catch a limit of fish, there's still a certain amount of respect that you have for that fisher, you would hope. And so I do believe that at a younger age, people are going to start becoming more aware. If there's one thing that seems to be trending, it's that the younger generations have a very different outlook on the planet than the older. Yeah. And it is, it's not that there's something wrong with the older generations. They did a wonderful job, and they've, they've really helped to, to bolster all the things that this country and this world need. They dealt with the issues of the day. That's it. Yeah. They, they fought what they had, and they, right. they made the best of it, and I appreciate them for that. But the younger generation seems to have a, a global consciousness that is different. It, it seems different. They are willing to support brands that support the globe, you know, the, the planet. They're willing to support brands that are doing something beyond making money. And so I think that we are going to go to a better place when it comes to awareness and to people taking ownership in, in the fisheries nice. and in our, in our planet. I, I, I believe that. Nice. The thing I want to um, end on and have you end on, actually, is um, that sort of notion of like, man, it was, you know, 
you even back to like your training and your prepping for the guide exam, your crazy idea to start planning mangrove projects, you know, um, and then, you know, barreling into fisheries and all that stuff. It's like these were started with just an initial little spark and flicker in your mind. And then quickly they resonated with other people and they like took a life of their own. And I just think that's a really important thing for all of us to hear when you're staring at anything today going like, how in the world am I going to make a dent on anything? It's, it, you can make a dent, and you're, you're proof of that three times over now. <laughs> <laughs> well, passion breeds passion. Yeah. You know, and, and, and this is what I talked about in Austin when you and I first met, is that people read your passion. They sense it. They feel it. It's, it's palatable. And when you are passionate about something, there's nothing more genuine in this world because that passion comes out in the way you talk. It comes out in your actions, and it's something that you can't hide, even if you wanted to. Like if someone started talking about black mangroves, I wouldn't be able to stand yeah. by and let them talk. I would have to, I'd have to put my two cents in because I'm passionate about them as a plant, them as a restoration tool, and what they're doing for my my coast in Louisiana. So, passion breeds passion. That that's the that's the truth of the matter. Find something you're passionate about and go out and and see where you can you can inject your 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 brand, yeah, your thoughts, you, your actions. And you can change your world. You and, can change your world yeah. very quickly and yeah. it doesn't take a lot. And that was the takeaway that I wanted to end on last night and I hope I did a good job. You did, man. Is that it doesn't take a lot. It does not take a lot. There are there are too many opportunities out there with technology for ways to weigh in, even on a political level, that were never available before. All you have to do is go to any senator or congressman's website, and there is an opportunity right there on the front page to send them an email. And guess what? They'll respond to it. Because if you're a constituent and you are a voter of them, you work. they work for you. And so they will listen to what you have to say. And some of it may be a canned, a canned response, and, and some of it may just be a, a staffer telling you something. But the truth is, is that someone's read that in their office and that you have the potential to make a difference. Yeah. And that's when I'm working out there on this fishery stuff on a federal level. I tell people that all the time. This is easier to engage than you think, and it doesn't take as many people as you would think to make a difference. Yeah. And that's empowering. That's empowering because yeah, there's like it's it. too it's easy it's too easy to get to get swept up yeah. and think I can't make a difference. My vote doesn't matter. Well, this is beyond a vote. A vote happens every two or four years. Yeah. This is something you could do on a daily basis. And if you got twenty people around you who feel the same way, guess what? If you all called in one day, now they're listening. Yeah. yeah. That that kind yeah. of stuff politicians, whether they want to admit to it or not, they they look for something like that because they want guidance as much as the next person. And yes, there's a lot of quid pro quo and horse trading that happens on on the hill and we get that that's all part of politics but the truth is is that they want someone to tell them what's next yeah i mean they're looking for something to to work on to champion a knowledgeable passionate advocate for 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 something for something yeah yeah Yeah. and 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 a lot of if you get enough people involved in that then it becomes their passion because they have to listen to the voters that's awesome, and man. that's and that's something that I think is extremely inspiring, and I think it's it's something that so many of us look beyond or never even look at because they just think it's not tangible. Yeah. It's not something that you can do. But I'm here to tell you, it is. And yes, I'm I'm a loud, boisterous person, and I go out and I will yell at you until you listen. But you can do this from the privacy of your own home. Yeah. You don't have to be an advocate in the traditional sense. You can be an advocate 
from your couch. Yeah. Well, yeah. The armchair advocate. Let's yeah, call it that. Right. I'm starting right. a new t-shirt. Yeah, yeah, I'm an armchair advocate. <laughs> well, I, for one, am happy and thankful that you're loud and boisterous well, and making these things happen. Tell my wife. Tell my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, thanks, man. It's always fun catching up with you and to hear what you're doing. And I know the next time I get to see you, you'll be launching and, and, and barreling into something else. So Most likely. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for coming up to Charleston. we got to get you to the airport. Um, where's the next cool joint you're going to uh, to go explore? Uh, we're gonna go to Los Angeles. Really? Uh, yeah. Whoa, what's that? Yeah, we're gonna go to Los Make Angeles. A movie? No, no. no. <laughs> Although I've always wanted to be on TV. <laughs> um, no, we're gonna go there and we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk fisheries because um, we're gonna be up there near their Congressman Huffman's district. Yeah. And uh, he he's really looking for ways to to get involved in in the fisheries on a federal level, um, as well as here, you know, Cunningham yeah. in, in South Carolina is doing yeah. sort of the same thing. And so there's some method to this madness, cool. you know, we're it's all part of your tour. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Calling it a tour might be, it seems more organized than <laughs> by calling it a tour, but you know, this is just, this is just where there's opportunity. I, you know, we go and yeah. we, we talk about it yeah. and, well, good and luck it's just a there. way to engage people. It's just a way to tell a story. It's, yeah. it's, that's what it's all about. I mean, we, as fishermen, we tell stories. That's the best thing you guys do. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's what yeah. makes us yeah. true fishermen yeah. Is, yeah. is how much can you exaggerate and elaborate, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, buddy, man. And look, I, I want to thank you. You know, I mean, y'all invited me into your space. You you gave me a platform to talk. Yeah. You welcomed me with open arms. You've been nothing but gracious hosts, and I really appreciate the hospitality. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, the warm welcome that I received. I mean, well, the people of, of Charleston are great. And um, Charleston's really, your second home now. Man. It is. I yeah. mean, and there's the, so much, man. The there's parallels, so much in common between these joints. Oh, right? uh, look, yeah. New Orleans and Charleston are the same yeah. city, more yeah. or less. I know yeah. y'all are a little yeah. older than we are, but yeah. the truth is, is the way that it was built, the architecture that's here, the history, the food, yeah. all of it is very similar to the Louisiana. beauty, the pain, the outdoors, everything. All is they they are definitely in sync. And so yeah. the parts yeah. that are great means that the parts that are bad are the same too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. The, yeah. that's the last part of this I want to leave everybody yeah. with is that. Never feel like your struggle is isolated because the truth is that somebody else is going through a very similar fight in their neck of the woods and there's an opportunity to connect. You know, social media has made us all connected in a point or in a way that we've never been before. And so you have a real opportunity to get out there and through a social media campaign or movement, you can become part of a larger voice. And it's easier to do now than it's ever been. And so to not go out there and look for that and see if there are people who are experiencing the similar things. It's it's just a, it's a waste of what is social media because the opportunity is there. Yeah. Otherwise, psh, what is it worth? What is it worth? <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All righty. Thanks for tuning into The Way Out There. And keep your eyes and ears open for another episode in the coming weeks. If you haven't already... You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever platform you prefer to get the new episodes without any delay. That's it for now, and as always, we hope you're finding the way out there.